Our Father, praise you so much that you are a speaking God. Thank you that your words are true and sweeter to the taste than uh, honey from the comb. And we pray that you would teach us this morning that we would find your word to be delicious indeed and that you would conform us to the image of your Son, that we might bring you glory. And we pray it for your name's sake. Amen. Well, some passages of the Bible are so famous that they provide phrases that uh, are so common in the English language, you might not even realise they come from the Bible. If someone is described as salt of the earth, what do we mean? Well, in colloquial English, we mean, according to the dictionary, a person of great value or reliability. And as Richard read there, perhaps you're thinking, oh, that's what it means. What does God mean by those words uh, in this passage? Before we can answer that important question, we need to remind ourselves of where we are in the narrative flow of Matthew's Gospel. Let's begin back in verse 1 of chapter 5. There we meet two groups. Jesus uh, has gathered around him his disciples and a great crowd. And we might ask the question, how do you tell those two groups apart? They are, after all, both on the mountainside with Jesus. They've both been following him around. They're both gathered to listen to what he's got to say. How does somebody move from being in the crowd to being one of Jesus' disciples? Well, here we go back even further, don't we? Chapter 4. Remember two weeks ago, Matthew told us that the world is in spiritual darkness. Uh, Chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Both the Israelites and the nations uh, around them had forgotten what God was like. They did their own thing. They were spiritually blind and morally dark. And Jesus had come as a great light shining in the darkness. He came to show those who were spiritually blind what God is like. And he came to show those who were morally blind what godly living looks like. And he called those people in darkness to repent that is to turn away from the darkness and to come into the light, to live for Jesus in the truth that Jesus provides. And the disciples have done that. The disciples have moved out of the crowd into the light to follow Jesus. And so what Jesus is doing here in the Sermon on the Mount, that famous teaching from chapters 5 to 7 of Matthew's Gospel, is telling his people what it looks like to follow him. I said this last week, but it's important for me to say this over and again. Jesus is not telling uh, his audience how to get into God's good books. That's because these people are already in his good books. His disciples have already repented. They've already come into the kingdom. The blessings of the kingdom belong to them already. They're already in. Nor is Jesus telling them how to stay in God's good books. That happens as they, as they repent daily, as they keep trusting in Jesus every day. The way in remains at the way you stay in. So what Jesus is doing is showing them how he expects his followers, as people who are already securely in, how he expects them to live. And in our passage this morning, we're going to see that Jesus expects us to live like him, to live as kingdom people. In a world that remains in darkness... As salty, lighty people and for God's glory. In the darkness, verses 10 to 12. See, we live in a world that remains in darkness. Ignorant of God, broken by sin, suffering and death. 
And that darkness is our natural home. I would hate for any of us to leave here this morning thinking that Christians think of ourselves as morally superior. See, we're just as darkened as everybody else. Did we become Christians because we're more morally, sorry, more spiritually insightful than anybody else? Did we just see the truth? Other people go for Buddhism and they're wrong. But we saw Jesus and we had the, the discernment to follow. No. Did we become Christians because we're more morally pure than other people? We're, we're less lost in the darkness. We're sort of more in, in a sort of uh, twilight hinterland. No, no, of course not. Uh, we Christians are as marred and broken by sin as as the next person. We're Christians because Jesus called us to repent, and that is what we did, pure and simple. And so verses 3 and 4, you'll remember from last week, the Christian knows his poverty. And she mourns of her spiritual lack of righteousness. Now, Jesus has called us to see ourselves and the world with fresh eyes, and then to do something about it. Now, the Christian is no, no better than anybody else in and an of ourselves naturally. But I'd also hate for us to go away from here thinking that Christians are the same as everybody else as well. Because the Christian is different. And not because of anything that's naturally in ourselves. But because of what Jesus is doing in and through us. See, Jesus asks his disciples here, those who've come into the light, to live in the darkness as a contrast to it, as like people. He calls Christians to be countercultural, whatever that culture happens to be. But of course, verse 10 Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, if you belong to Jesus, your place in heaven is secure. That's where you belong, the kingdom of heaven. And because you belong there and you desire to be there and you desire to live like somebody who belongs there, that is, you live for righteousness, uh, you're going to be different to the darkness around you, the darkness of Ellsfield culture. We might not think of Ellsfield as a, as a darkened place. I've had two conversations with members of the congregation this week uh, after last week's sermon who said, uh, so many of my friends have had abortions. Uh, there's a murderer in every other house in Ellsfield. We don't think of abortion like that as a culture, but as Christians we do. And it's a tragedy. We read in the Bible of people sacrificing their children in the fire to Molech, and we're horrified by that. Should we not be as horrified by abortion culture? That people flippantly murder their children? There is a darkness here. And as we stand up and are different to it, uh, we will uh, be persecuted for it. Let me say... I'm sure that there are people in this room who uh, have, have to wrestle with this issue. I'm sorry, I don't mean to be dismissive. Uh, some of us will have had abortions, and the grace of the gospel is there uh, for even that. But we are to be different to the darkness. We're to see the darkness for what it is and be different. And notice verse 11, would you? Uh, the persecution can be verbal, it can be economic, it can be physical as many of our brothers and sisters around the world know. But notice, it is really against you because of me, the end of verse 11, says Jesus. See, our desire to be in heaven is to be with Christ. Our desire to be like heavenly people now is to be like Christ. And so as we, as we pursue righteousness, 
We will be persecuted for Christ's sake, for being his people. The Christian who mourns over sin, who longs for righteousness, see, we could be tempted to hide in the darkness, couldn't we? We could be tempted to hide in the shadows, but our passion for righteousness should drive us into the light again, to stand up and be different, to be peacemakers, verse 9, to be those who show mercy, verse 7. And we can expect the darkness to not approve when we do. Now, Jesus doesn't say go out and look for persecution, but it is inevitable if we live as Jesus calls us to. And so it's worth noting, as we, as we move into our passage today, the encouragements Jesus provides at verse 12. There is nothing a Christian can lose that is not already better secured in heaven. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. And not great will be your reward if you do these things, but great is already your reward in heaven. You're you're heaven's people if you're Christians. And your eternal future is already secured. We've seen, haven't we, in chapter 4, verses 23 to 25, as Jesus pushed back the darkness, as he deals with suffering and death. And this is what the kingdom looks like. That's your future. And it's already secure. And whatever the world can try and take from you now, and you think about our brothers and sisters, our children who are being beheaded by ISIS, even now, for standing up for Jesus, there's nothing the world can take away that you won't have bigger and better in the next life. So rejoice. And secondly, you're just like the prophets of old. Do you notice that? Even God's so-called people Israel, they murdered the prophets that God sent to them. They also killed Jesus, didn't they? And so we know we're on the right track when the world persecutes us, just like every Christian down through the centuries. Every person who stood for light in a dark world has suffered. We should not expect it to be different for us. We're living in the darkness. And we're to live in the darkness as salty, lighty people, verses 13 through 16. See, in these verses, Jesus moves on to give us two pictures of salt and light. So if the Beatitudes that we looked at last week are at Christ's call to change how we see ourselves and engage with the world, if verses 10 through 12 teach us that the darkness won't appreciate it, these verses tell us that we will stand out as a contrast to the darkness. As we already said, Christians come out of the darkness. We're, we're no better in our natural selves than anybody else. But it isn't true that Christians remain darkness. It's not possible for Christians to remain darkness. By drawing close to Jesus, by spending time in the light, being warmed by the light, being taught by the light, we become changed people. Not because of any merit in us, but because of what Christ is doing in us. See, we're meant to stand out in a darkened world. Let's dig into that first image in verse 13 and that famous phrase. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Let's start with uh, the complicated bit of this verse. How is it you can have salt that isn't salty? It's not possible, is it? Clearly, your salt is either salt, in which case it's salty, or it's not salt, in which case it's not salty. You can't have salt that is actually salt, but doesn't taste of salt. That doesn't work. At least, 
It doesn't today, if you go to Sainsbury's up the road and buy, buy a packet of salt, it will be pure sodium chloride. But that wasn't the way it was in the first century. You didn't buy it off the supermarket shelves. Uh, somebody went down to the sea and gathered it off the rocks and so on and put it in a bag and brought it to the market. And so salt was mixed up with all sorts of mostly harmless other stuff. And if the bag got moist, the, the salt would be lifted out by the moisture, leach out of the bag, and you'd be left with something that looked like salt but had no salt content. It's how you get saltless salt. And so you can see pretty easily how this applies to us. Christians are a mixed bag as well. But the saltiness of the gospel, the change that Christ has wrought in us, makes us distinct from the world around us. If we lose our salty edge, if we lose the the difference that comes from the gospel, well, we're just useful for being thrown out as garbage. You can't be saltless salt. So much for the complicated bit of the verse. But what is it really about, exactly? Four options, I think. Uh, The first is, it could be terrorism. If you heard uh, in the first reading this this morning, from Deuteronomy 29, how people came and salted the land, uh, salted the earth, as an act of terrorism. When a country was conquered, you would uh, punish them for their rebellion against you by putting salt all over the ground. It prevented them from growing crops, and so it was a, an act of punishment. Uh, we, we could take these words, you are the salt of the earth, in that way. It's a very biblical picture. But it hardly fits with what Jesus is trying to do here, does it? After all, uh, the, the, the salt is only thrown onto the ground here when it stops being salty. It stops being useful for that purpose. So I guess that can't be it. Uh, second option, then. We know, uh, historically, that salt was used as a preservative. Stop your meat going rotten. You salt it, and, and it stopped the uh, germs from, from uh, eating away at the, the meat. So Jesus could be saying, your culture is fetid and rotten, and you're supposed to be sort of a cultural salt to preserve uh, your culture. That would make more sense, I think, of the positive sense of salt here. But it doesn't really f- deal with the focus on the taste of the salt, does it? And so I don't think that's the meaning either. Thirdly, salt was used as a flavouring, as it is today. It has a distinctive, pleasant taste that enriches what would have been pretty bland food in those days. Indeed, uh, because people didn't have fridge freezers in those days, their food would often be turning, be going off. And you'd put salt on it to hide the taste of the rot. And so, uh, perhaps Jesus here is saying, uh, you're supposed to purify the culture. Yes, you are. You're supposed to give a flavour to the culture. You're supposed to be different, distinctive, the better part of the flavouring of the culture. I think that makes the most sense of what's going on here, because Jesus says Christians are to be the salt of the earth. We'd be focused out onto the world. We're supposed to be distinctively tasting, good tasting in a world that isn't so good tasting, a bland and rotting culture. But I think if we stop just there, we miss something. So there's a fourth option, a very common biblical option, the salt of the covenant. In the law and the prophets, we're told over and again that salt was offered as part of the sacrifice. Which makes a lot of sense, because the priests would want to have their condiments with with the sacrifices they were eating. And so you would go to the temple and you'd offer your bag of salt, and if the salt was genuinely tasty salt, the priest would accept it as, as a worthy sacrifice to God. 
And so, yes, uh, this is about us being distinctive in the world around us as Christians. But it's also about us offering that distinctiveness to God as a sacrifice. It is about us as Christians offering our lives to God as different people. Don't be bland. Don't compromise. Your saltiness is an offering to God that does good to those around you. That's a good thing to be. So be salt and be light, verses 14 to 16. And Jesus returns here to the image of, of light and darkness that's been running through these uh, this couple of chapters. And the surprise here is no longer that Jesus is the light. It is what Jesus says here. You are the light of the world. Notice two things that are truly extraordinary about this phrase. The first is the emphatic you. And he's talking to uh, perhaps four men at this point. You, uh, Andrew, Peter, James and John, at least if you're following the narrative of Matthew, maybe no more than four people, we're not told of any more, you disciples, and you are the light of the world. See, apart from Christ, there is no light. There's only darkness. Every culture, every, every country. But because of Christ, all his people, at this case four men, are little lights. The only lights in the world. It's an extraordinary thing to say. They, they are the ones who are going to go out and be light for the whole world. And yet they did, didn't they? And every Christian down through the centuries who knows Christ, who carries the knowledge of Christ, who has been transformed by Christ, something of the renewed image of Christ is a little light. Flickering like a match, yes, where Jesus is the sun, but nevertheless bearing a similar image. Of course, we can get quite blasé about this as Christians in the 21st century because the church is everywhere. The gospel's gone all over the world. And so the light is in all the world. But let's not miss what an extraordinary thing it is to say at this point to such a small group, the only hope for the world. And so the, the call that Jesus makes on the disciples there and us here is a big one. And he wants us to grasp it, and so he gives us two negatives, doesn't he? At first, do you notice, a, a city or a town built on a hill, literally a city on a mountain, cannot be hidden. It's not possible. You'd have to get quite a big blanket to put over the top, wouldn't you? And you'll know that experience if you're uh, perhaps uh, flying back, uh, back home at night, as I was last month uh, from Italy, and you, you fly over uh, just a black canvas, and then you, you, you see a city. Perhaps you're flying over Paris or London, and it's vast, and the lights are everywhere. You see it very clearly. And so it was there. No street lights. The city is lit up. The countryside is black. And you can see the city for miles around. It's not possible to hide a city on a hill. You cannot hide a city, but secondly, you should never hide a lamp. And neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, so they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. Oil was expensive. Uh, trimming your wick and building your, your lamp was expensive and time-consuming. And you'd be mad, wouldn't you? To go to all that time and expense and then put a big bowl over the top of it that starved it of oxygen, put the lamp out, hid the light of the lamp. It's a complete waste. It's a complete waste. What you do is you take the cover off and you put it on top of the stand and it gives light to the room. And we know that, don't we? In a very dark room, even a little candle gives a lot of light off. And it's not hard to see what Jesus is saying here, is it? Look at where he goes in verse 16. In the same way, 
Let your light shine before others. Because of our relationship with Christ, we have become little lights. And as a church, we're a slightly bigger light together. And that same Jesus calls us to be careful not to hide our light. And you can't hide it if you're a city. But you could be tempted to hide it if you think of it as a lamp. Saltless salt is useless. So don't compromise. Don't be like the world around us. We're going to need to make choices that mean that we conform to the light and not to the darkness. I'm going to think a lot about that over the next couple of chapters of Matthew's Gospel. Very specific ways in which Jesus is going to land this for us in different areas of our lives. But equally, you can't live as a different person but, but hide the differences. It's going to be tempting, isn't it, to live in one way but speak in public differently. Uh, to, to, to try to conform to people outwardly as best you can while knowing that you live differently at home. And Jesus says, don't hide your lamp. Don't, don't pretend you're no different to the darkness. Uh, God has very deliberately put us on a lampstand here in Ellsfield. Where else is the light here if it's not us? And every one of us is meant to live as a light in our homes, our offices, our circle of friends, wherever we find ourselves. Bright, shining, crystal clear lights in contrast to the darkness, different to the world around us, exposing the darkness, even if some people will hate us for it. Some will hate us for it. But there are others, you see, other travellers on the road who see the light of the city on a hill, who rejoice to see it, who will be drawn towards it. And that's rather the point here at the end of verse 16. We do it for God's glory. We're meant to live differently because we hate the brokenness of the world and long for righteousness in ourselves and in our community. We're meant to be salt and light because uh, the persecutions that will come will challenge, uh, be a challenge from the darkness that expose the darkness. We become more distinctively light. And verse 16 gives us the, much, the highest possible aim uh, and reason for living distinctively. Do you notice? Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. A world that is ignorant of God and spiritually blind will not and cannot honour God as they should. The whole world ought to be giving glory to the Father already, but they don't. Uh, Jesus came as the light to show us what God is like and to show us how we ought to live to honour God. Uh, but now Jesus has gone back to heaven and the question is, how will the world see the glory of God in order to give him the glory that he deserves? For they cannot see him. How is it that God, who is in heaven, verse 16, will be glorified here on earth? And the answer is very simple, isn't it? We will shine. That phrase, your Father in heaven, is pretty much identical to the phrase at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. It speaks of uh, the God who is above all things and yet is in personal relationship with his people. That's how we take it, isn't it? That prayer that we'll come to in a few weeks' time. It's about God's care for his people and his people lovingly relating to God. It's a very relational picture. And as we relate to that God and we seek to bring him glory, notice verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. Verse 16, let your light shine before others. Do you see, God is in heaven and people can't see him, but we are on earth. We're still in the darkness. We're in the world. We're, we're before other people. 
And as his representatives, as his little lights, we're meant to be distinctive, and distinctive in the right way, not odd, not just odd for oddness's sake, being distinctive because we're, we're weird, but being different in the right way, reflecting his glory to the world in such a way that others see us and see God in us. And notice too that it is our good deeds that people are supposed to see. It's not enough to simply speak right, which I think is sometimes our temptation. We have to live right. Be salty, lighty people in a way that confronts the world by living differently. Unsettle the world, expose the wrong. Have a different ethic, a different worldview, and show it in the way that we live. One that reflects the ultimate reality. Christ is our light. God is our centre. We long to be with him and live like him. Of course, we'll have to speak for the Father too. There's no way that someone is going to glorify our Father in heaven if they don't know why we're different. We're going to have to speak. But the focus here is on how we live. It's on our good deeds. As I said, Jesus is going to land this in a whole bunch of ways over the next few weeks as we look through uh, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. There'll be a whole bunch of very uh, grounded, earthy ways in which we're going to be asked to, to live differently. Indeed, told to live differently. And I hope that as, as our passion for righteousness grows, we'll long to do that. But let me illustrate what this might look like. A number of, for a number of years, Mim and I led a, a small group together at our old church. And we had a little Spanish man in our group called David. He was very little and he was Spanish. And he was in our group for about four years, I think. Uh, he never sang the songs in church, although he came every week. He never prayed. Uh, because he never actually came to follow Jesus for himself. And I remember one Christmas day, he was with us for Christmas, and I remember sitting down for some hours with him and saying, David, why don't you trust Jesus? Ultimately, he said he wanted to be rich and famous more than he wanted to be in Jesus' kingdom, and that was, that was God for him. And so I said to him, David, why is it you keep coming to church? And what he said struck me, and I think uh, it perfectly illustrates uh, this passage. He said, there is a way that people love each other here that doesn't exist out there. I'll quote him. He said, it is horrible out there. People are selfish. People are unkind. People live for themselves. And the truth is, I was blind to that. I'd been so long in the church, I hadn't seen the difference that was there. But he could see it. And though he never wanted to become a follower of Jesus, he did want to be in the church because he saw the difference. He saw the light. Yes, we're still broken people, and yes, we, was, we still make plenty of mistakes, and uh, I've no doubt that the longer you are in a church, the more you see all the faults of the pastor and, and, and the church. But nevertheless, the church was different. And he never made the connection, despite my best efforts, between what he saw in the people and in the gospel. But I guess many of us here would bear testimony to the fact that the thing that really persuaded us to, to give Christianity a look was the people, was for me. I had no interest in Christianity until uh, I met Christians and saw the love that they had for each other. It was odd. I wanted to find out what it was about. And I guess many of us would bear that same testimony uh, of, what, uh, of seeing the light of Christ in people. Perhaps there are some of you here today who uh, are not yet following the Lord Jesus. But you're here because you've seen some light in people. You've, you find uh, Christians a bit odd. We're, we're a bit countercultural, And you want to know what it is that makes us different. Can I say? It is the Lord Jesus who gives us light. Now, please don't walk away like David did and never put your trust in him. 
We're no different to anybody else in our natural selves. But we are different people because of what the gospel has done in us and what God is doing in us day by day. He's opened the way to heaven through the Lord Jesus and has called us to live now as people who are destined to be there. And it's our joy to do so. What about for those of us who are already following the Lord Jesus? What's it going to look like for us to not hide our light, to not be compromised, but to be distinctive and stand out? There's lots of answers to come. Uh, Let me give one uh, fairly concrete example, I think, that I know won't apply to everybody here, but I hope will be helpful as we begin to nail this down. And what's it going to look like for those of us who spend time at the school gate? I appreciate that's not everybody. Uh, Earlsfield, Wimbledon Park area, they're affluent, aren't they? Uh, Full of people who have great aspirations for their children. I know of uh, of parents who have out-of-school tutoring for their five-year-old. True story. Uh, Parents who who have their kids doing every single extracurricular club you can imagine. are trying to give their kids the the greatest chance to be the greatest success they can be. Because that's what they themselves live for. Uh, parents who get together in their gilet cabals and uh, whisper about uh, the child that doesn't quite fit in, the less able child, uh, the kid from the working class home across the estate, the children who just aren't like my Tarquin. Can you see how the darkness spreads in Ellsfield and Wimbledon Park? Can you see it? How greed and pride have come to put together a poison chalice that we pass on to our children by telling them they must conform to this way of being. What will it mean for us to be salty, lighty people in that world? What are the choices we'll make for our children? And how will we talk about them in the playground with the other mums and dads? Do we think that the most important thing for our kids is success? Or are we more interested in them knowing and loving and serving the Lord Jesus with their lives? Uh, Do we put pressure on our kids to do constant extra things? Or do we put our focus on creating a home that is unconditionally loving and full of the light of Christ? I'm not saying for a moment that you shouldn't let your kids do clubs. Uh, We let our kids do clubs. It's a joy to do that. But I'm saying that as we make our choices, will we make the choices in the same way and for the same reason as the people around us? Because if that's what we do, then we're in danger of losing our saltiness. And you cannot be a saltless Christian. How will you choose to speak at the school gate? You can make those distinctive choices, and yet when the conversation happens about that person over there, we can just conform. We can hide our light, can't we? Just blend in. Or will we stand out? Will we love people? Will we speak to the outsider? and the awkward person, and and the kid from a different background. But we put our light on a stand and show people how to be different. How will you speak of those who are different to you? How will you speak to people who are different from you in those contexts? How will we challenge the darkness by showing the world how dark it is and by being light? I'm sure you can imagine how to apply that in a different way in your different contexts. But friends, we cannot hide our light. We cannot be saltless Christians. We are called to be salty, lighty people in a world that is dark and destined for hell and needs the light of Christ badly. And I'm going to pray that we can be that. Should we pray? Our loving Lord Jesus, we praise you 
that your light has gone out all over the world and that people for uh, two millennia have been called into your light. And we delight in that and we praise you that your light has come here. We praise you for the people who stood out as different in our lives. That caused us to uh, come to Christ. And we pray that you would help us to be salty, lighty people in a world that is dark. And to make those different choices and to speak and live in a way that is uh, out there that people will see. And we do pray, even in the, as we face persecution of various kinds, we pray that you would bring many people uh, to the light through us. And we pray it for your glory. Amen.